We're a curious bunch here at Six Black Pens. We love beautiful, brilliant creative, but we want to know why it works, what people think, what moves them, and what makes them behave the way they do. We're about the art and the science of communications. In our Inquisitive Minds series, we'll be looking at creative and beyond it, digging into psyches and mindsets and data and all the things that shape the decisions customers make. We think with a little bit of smarts, we can uncover a whole lot of insights. Today, I'm talking to Six Black Pens Head of Creative, Joe Mayock, about how we can use communications to manage and address the barriers to change. We want to answer the question, how can you plan for change so it becomes an opportunity and not a hurdle? So thanks for joining us, Joe. So my first question to you, why does change matter? Why should the way we approach change be important to any organisation? The short version is we're surrounded by it. The increased rate, the volatility, the overall impact of change, it really, that's no secret. You know, the, the genie is very much out of the bottle and a lot has been written about change, in fact, being really a kind of a, a defining characteristic of our time. It's now clear that the increasing pace of global and economic and technological developments have really made change a kind of a constant. It's almost an inevitability for organisations and anecdotally, you know, particularly here at Six Lack Pens in the last few years, across almost every single one of our client categories, we've observed and in, and in many instances been asked to help manage, indeed, sort of seismic changes to those businesses. And that's great. You know, that's a good thing because we, we see change as an opportunity, especially considering that there's a pretty big difference between change that just happens and change that is planned because organisations can employ plan change to solve problems, adapt to external environmental factors, improve effectiveness, do all kinds of really positive on the front foot things. And, and by doing so, they can actually harness and use change to not only survive complex and strange times, but, but prosper and, and thrive. So really, that's a, a really positive thing for us that we've been asked to help plan for change as opposed to our clients just letting it happen. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like I said, there's a huge difference between change that just happens and plan change. When you're on the front foot, when it's proactive and you put plans in place and, and you're getting your story straight and you, you, know, you know what needs to be achieved, that's really what's led us to the creation of this framework. So, Joe, what I'm interested to understand is, you know, is, are there any dynamics that we need to be aware of when it comes to this? How can we better understand change itself? Yeah. There are. There are some key aspects in understanding change itself. The first, I guess, is identifying reasons for change. It's pretty obvious, but there will be vastly differing reasons for implementing a change. Also, recognising different types of change that's needed according to the scenario and, and the reasons and the causes. There's also the, the kind of this concept, embracing the concept of resistance. Resistance is a big kind of hairy thing that sits at the heart of any change initiative. And it's really important to have a deep understanding of the dynamics of resistance. And then lastly, it's really about understanding and deploying the right strategies in, in response. So in terms of what was the first part? Oh, yeah, reasons for change. There are many examples of reasons for change. I mean, the, the list is almost endless, but we're talking about things like, for example, fixing what's broken, 
You know, you may have an organization may have a, a structure or a methodology that is no longer performing or is outdated or is just bust. Another example would be seizing opportunities, say for, you know, the result of developments in technology or a shift in the competitive environment. Something that we come across a lot is aligning organizations, especially large complex ones that might have lost clarity or lost focus or maybe the result of mergers and acquisitions, that kind of thing. Also, at a very, very high level, it could be the results of a change of vision, you know, which happens more often than you'd expect. You know, the need to fundamentally shift the direction and aspiration of the organization. That's always very interesting as well. So there are lots of reasons to implement a change. Yeah, it's interesting that there are um, so many reasons. Do we find that there have been any which are more predominant in some of the examples we've worked with, or is it a sort of a, a combination? Actually, it's interesting that you raise combination because it's more often than not a combination. And even if it's just cause and effect. So let's say we, ha- we may have a, a change of vision. You know, the, the organization needs to head in a slightly different direction. That may result in the creation of new value propositions and things like that. And people need to be brought along for the ride for that. And, and that's something that we're, we're pretty well built to, to handle ourselves. Yeah, the idea of combination is important, but I think there will nearly always be one big major driving force behind any change, be it environmental or strategic or, or yeah, that kind of thing. So you mentioned up front, you, you've, you've talked about the reasons for change, but then you also talked about it's important for us to recognize the types of change needed. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, that's the second really big piece in, in understanding change is, is the types of change, because again, they, they differ vastly. But when we're talking about, and this is getting more technical and more specific now, when we're talking about deploying different types of change we can almost see them as interventions because that's what we're doing we're getting in there and we're interfering with the situation and there are a whole host of different interventions that may be appropriate for different needs again just some examples would include human process interventions which is really about improving the way people work together and there'll be a number of tactics around that be it you know workflow redesign hr type stuff But yeah, all concentrating on getting the most out of the way people interact together. Another would be techno-structural interventions, which unsurprisingly focus on technology and and structure. This is where interventions, including things like downsizing, for example, that can come in. That's a techno-structural intervention. And obviously there are huge ramifications around that in terms of, you know, the job to be done, communicating that and managing that process in an overall change management program. And again, going back to strategy, strategic interventions, you know, they can be about organizational design and cultural re-engineering. There are lots and lots of interventions in it's, and it's important that we understand those as a broader, in our broader understanding of change management itself. So there are quite a few things to, to consider there. So we've got different reasons for change. We might have a combination of those reasons. We've got these different types of change. So you've talked about some of the interventions there. Now, something else that you mentioned before, which I found interesting is also talking about, you said, embracing the concept of resistance. So can you tell me more about that? You know, what else do we need to know about that? How can we unpack that a bit? Yeah, this is, this is the third key element. And resistance is, 
is really interesting. And, and for us, actually, it's probably the crux of the topic, at least for us as an agency. Resistance is interesting because it comes on in many levels and, and it comes in many forms. You know, it can come from the level of the individual, you know, the person, which I can kind of expand on a little bit. But also you get organizational resistance, which is about that kind of dynamic and groups and the way the organization is built sometimes is a contributor to, to resistance. But there's all different types of forms. For example, cognitive rigidity is something that I think we all know a stick in the mud, you know. Some people, you know, are just like that, you know, and they, you know, they, they need help and they need help in understanding, which we'll kind of expand on. And I, I would say that can also be a major feature of organisations as well as individuals. Yeah. That can be, totally. you know, a, a real feature of a, of a corporate, yeah. just their philosophy. Yes, that's right, on that higher corporate level. Another example would be a kind of a, a lack of psychological resilience. You know, a lot of people, more, more than you might think, really fear change as a default setting. You know, that's their starting point. People don't like change. It doesn't matter what the change is. Um, or, or, or even things like time. Sometimes firms, and this, this can often be at the organisational level, have an intolerance to the time involved in a change. You know, it's, it's not that they don't want it to happen. They just don't want to be rushed. You know, and you need to. So in terms of understanding different types of resistance, and there are many, many more, it's, it's really important that you know what you're dealing with so that you can deploy the right responses. But when we, when we talk about resistance, probably, and my favorite in this instance, when talking about organizational changes, and this is straight from behavioral economics theory, is status quo bias, which I know you know a lot about, Em which is, is really a, a mixture of a couple of really strong biases, a mixture of loss aversion and the sunk costs fallacy. Basically, what it means is we tend to focus more on what we could lose than on what we could gain by trying something new. And the more we have invested in something, the more likely we are to keep investing in it. You know? And when we put those two things together, that can be a pretty sort of potent degree of resistance yeah it's i mean status quo bias is it's such a a powerful hardwired instinct that we have it's a really difficult one to to overcome so that's you know probably you know i'd imagine one of the central challenges that we'd have with overcoming change because it's such a natural response to it and it's you know it's really really hard to to overcome that you know, and that's psychological resilience that you you talked about is like, how do I guess, do you sort of coach people around that? And what do you do to, to mitigate it? That's really interesting. Thank you. To that point, knowing how resistance, probably one of your key challenges here, are there any strategies that can help us? You know, what are the ways around it that, you know, yeah, the ways for us to mitigate it? Absolutely. There are. Strategy is really important. And, and, the appropriate selection of strategies to, to use and how to use them is at the heart of this. And much like, you know, resistance and types of change and reasons for change, there are some, there are some headlines, you know, there are some, some big plays, some, some, some major moves that you can use to address some of these issues. Uh, so, for example, a major element of strategy in terms of addressing resistance is empathy and support. I mean, it may sound very obvious, but demonstrating understanding of how people experience change and importantly, how different people experience change differently and the openness 
of that is really, really important. It's a great way of, of lowering those barriers and in a meaningful fashion, you know, showing empathy and demonstrating support whilst people are dealing with change. So this works on a, a sort of more of an individual basis. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But I guess in a way that you could you could view it on an organisational level as well, you know, in terms of the team and in terms of a broader, more holistic view of a group of individuals. I think that that works as well. But another major strategy is around clarity and providing it, you know, where often, and th- this would come under the banner of different types of resistance, vacuums get filled and often not with the right stuff, you know. So by providing clarity for people, you're mitigating that, you know, because we know that people tend to resist change when there's uncertainty or where they're uninformed about any potential consequences. And as I said, if you leave that as a vacuum, it will get filled. Um, so providing clarity and, and giving people, arming people with an understanding is really, really important. Yeah, I think that is incredibly important just from some of my experience looking at, I guess, you know, behavioral strategies to to help manage change, like, you know, big sort of organizational change. And, you know, one of the major barriers was it was just wasn't clear what's happening, when is it happening, what's yeah. the timeline, yeah. how and am I going to be affected? people want to know these things. Yeah, that's right. And as an organization, you may not have all the answers, but being transparent about what you do have and what you don't have is, is a really great strategy to bring people on board and bring them along for the journey and, and get, get that engagement. And then the, the, the last one that I've kind of made a note here is, is participation. And again, I think it's, a, it's another obvious one. We know that one of the most effective strategies for overcoming resistance is to get people involved. Really simple. Get them to participate. Get them involved. Have them own the process. Have them own the wins. You know, it's a proven tactic and it works incredibly well. And so, yeah, in terms of strategies, again, there are, there are many and it's important to identify the right ones and, and to employ them at the right time. But for us, and really what I guess this, this podcast is about, is what underpins all of these. And the thing that we are most interested in is communication. Because you really can't use any of these strategies without carefully considered use of communication. And that's, that's why we built the Communicating Change Framework. Okay. Great. So I'm really un- interested to to build more on that point. You know, you've talked about what we're really concentrating on here is how we use communication. So I'd love to understand a bit more about that, you know, the, the role that communication plays here, the importance of, of communication and how we can use it best to drive and, and support, I guess, effective organizational change. If you could tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Communication is, is super important. Obviously, it's not the only thing. You know, it's worth highlighting that change management itself, especially large-scale transformation, really is a multidiscipline, multi-tier effort. Our framework, and what, what, what I'm talking about today, is built specifically to focus on the key aspect of communication within that broader effort. And so all of our thinking is really grounded in science, We've grounded our thinking in, in Lewin's model of plan change. And Lewin, very clever guy, put together this theory of plan change. And it's basically a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is considered the foundation of all others. Lewin's theory of plan change is the preeminent theory. It's, it's kind of, it's the one 
that all the other models are based on. And while we can't really, we don't have the time to really get into the depth here, it's, it's some great thinking and proven through research. What it shows is this idea that modifying the things that are keeping things the same, in fact, causes less friction than increasing the forces for change. Also, to, to put it another way, rather than pushing a change through with blunt force, it's actually more effective to increase your efforts on softening resistance. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, and that makes perfect sense as a, as a theory because, of course, you don't, you don't want to force it through. Um, but yeah, it'd be really interesting to, to see how that comes to life for 100%. Yeah, well, like I said, we, you know, we don't have time for all of the granular detail, but broadly speaking, the model can be broken down into three steps. And if we use, if we use an analogy of, a, I don't know, an ice cube or an ice sculpture or something like that, the first step would come under the banner of unfreezing. You could say defrosting, but unfreezing. And this involves reducing the forces that maintain the organization's behavior at the present level. So that's the first one, unfreezing. The second step is the change. It's, it's the movement. And this is about shifting the behavior of the organization or the department or the individual to a new level or to a new place. And then the last is refreezing. And this is about stabilizing the organization once again, but at that new state of equilibrium, at that new, that new level, that new place. So those three steps, unfreezing, movement, and then refreezing. Okay, great. So that makes sense as a series of steps. So you're reducing those forces. So you're sort of getting people out of that current behavior, shifting them across to the new behavior, and then you're sort of cementing that that behavior. That's it. Okay, great. And so those three steps within that model, how is that or how has that informed the framework that we use to to manage uh, help manage change through communications yeah so what we've done is we've taken that science and we've taken the theory you know we've combined it as a foundational theory with our own understanding of complex corporates you know the role of creativity our understanding of key audiences and those complex customer journeys or member journeys the most effective channels we're pretty experienced in that kind of stuff as well as well as phasing and cadence of communication, which is really, really important for large-scale programs. And all of these things really come together to do three things, inspire, energize, and engage around the change. Okay, so those three parts of the framework, they tally with what we just talked about with the unfreezing, the shift and the... In, in a way, yes. Yeah, they do. They do. They, they provide a basic framework. We've built out on it, which, which I'll get to. But yeah, they do, because those, each of those steps are really meaningful. And I think the trap often is to have an unbalanced response, you know, where so often all of the effort goes into a big bang, ta-da, this is a change, and then nothing else happens, which is a real mistake. But yeah, as a framework, what we've got is it's scalable. We've actually got it in four parts and to a degree flexible. You know, like I said, it's scalable, yes, but you wouldn't want to lop off entire chunks of it because that, that would really be at the detriment to the program. So our four steps are slightly different. The first stage is, is really scene setting. And this is a, a pre-phase that is designed to ground all of the activity in a really kind of simple, why, why are we doing any of this? And it does it using tactics that we feel are best geared for A, educating and, and B, informing 
the target audience. So for example, and this is just purely for example, EDM programs, we could use video explainers at this stage. This is where we may create intranet content or create intranet hubs or carve off a section for an internet for that, you know, that drip feed or that scheduling of content around the change. And that's, so that's stage one. That's this kind of the scene setting. So that's creating a sort of a bedrock of of information there. The bedrock. Yeah. Without going into too much detail, because that detail would come in the next phase, which is what we call the inspire phase. And this is, I guess, going back to Maslow's work is this is the, the unfreezing. So the inspire phase is about really building understanding within the audience to create readiness for change. That's what we're focusing on here, creating readiness. It's not the change, it's creating readiness through understanding. And it it shifts gears a little bit from education to things like generating excitement and also consulting. You know, we want to be talking to our audiences, but in a consultative fashion. So for example, this could be about creating launch in a box packages to create buzz or the creation of physical or virtual workshops to start to have that kind of bit more of a conversation going on around the change. So there are a number of specific tactics as we move through gears, you know, everything from education and informing through to generating excitement and beginning to consult. And we've got lots and lots of tactics that we can deploy throughout those stages. And then in our framework, the third phase is the energize phase. And this is going back to Lewin's work is the the movement. This is the change phase. And so this is about creating momentum through implementation. So changes are being made, but to match up with that and properly support that, the tactics shift again. And for example, they could shift through to encouragement. They can shift to securing commitment. And so for example, we could create customer forums with live Q&A sessions, always very powerful when a change is happening to be reminded of the real need for a change and there's nothing like hearing it from your customers. We could set up internal competitions run via the intranet to secure that commitment and provide that that encouragement. Or we could design ways to people could create their own personalized manifesto. So we're getting people more involved. So so that connects with what we talked about under resistance strategies when we talked about participation. We said that's a really effective strategy. You get people involved and they feel more ownership. That's right. And then the last stage is what we've called the engage phase. And this is the kind of the refreezing. So this phase is a is about making that kind of that long-term cultural shift stick. And it does it by building on previous phases, but also providing praise and securing ongoing commitment. So for example, we might create quarterly periodicals, whether they're physical or digital. We can create workbooks for teams to track their their personal or their team progress in their, you know, their small corners of the overarching change. Um, there are a number of things that we can do to kind of secure that ongoing commitment and uh, support people as they as they move and, and navigate their way through the change. And how important do you think that last uh, phase is? Super important. Yeah, it's um, it's the thing that often drops off. And I think it's something that requires commitment, you know, but also some very finely tuned communication. So it's not nagging, if you know what I mean. It's more, it's more encouraging and it's more about embedding that understanding and embedding that change going forward. 
So in terms of the, the flexibility of the framework, is there any phase that would give or is it really a question of the, the level of each phase or the scale of it? Yeah, I, I don't think any phase can just disappear. I think they have to support each other. I mean, obviously, we have to be realistic, you know, in terms of if there's a change going through the business, there's, you know, there's, we're not looking for hobbies, you know, it's an appropriate response. And I think that for that reason, some of the phases may get more attention than others. That's fine. But what I would be wary of is just discounting anyone in particular. I think it's really important to have the scene setting because that's the first news, you know, that's the headline. That's the first impression of the change. And then building that understanding and creating that readiness for change within the audience through understanding, arming them with the facts and often being quite honest, you know, is, is really important. The energized phase, building that momentum as the implementation goes through and providing that encouragement and, and commitment, securing that commitment. I wouldn't want to remove that. I think that's really important. And then we just touched on the, on the last phase, you know, making that cultural long-term, you know, the, making it stick. You wouldn't want to go to all of that effort uh, and then just let things go back to the way that they were. It's a really interesting framework. And, you know, I love that it is, it, it's so clear and, you know, it's what, and the clarity is, is that we know what we're doing at each different stage that's and right. it's all geared up to really address barriers what have we seen in the way of, obviously, this is something that we've rolled out to a few clients and have you seen it be successful? Have you seen it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have a client who has been through and will be through more merger and acquisition scenarios with a potential internal and external impact on the perceptions of those, you know, those mergers and acquisitions on a brand level. And by implementing a program like this over a space of time that is planned change, not just dealing with change that just happens, we've been able to get ahead of it and we've been able to communicate effectively, uh, deploying the right tactics at the right time to the right audiences. And we've been seeing really fantastic results, uh, surprisingly good results. Fantastic. Well, that is so interesting. And thank you so much for, for spending some time talking about that. You know, a really big thank you for all of those insights today. No worries. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in hearing more, our contact details are in the show notes.